Musical Encounters, a podcast about the world, its people, and all that we share. In 1960, the career of Alfred Hitchcock was at a stake. Pressed by the critics, moral taboos, budget limitations, and the growing disaffection of the younger generations to the classic Hollywood formula, he bet his prestige and his own patrimony in a risky and risque project that was to become one of his most acclaimed works, the psychological horror thriller, Psycho. Hitchcock tacked the film on a tight production budget and a schedule, completing the shooting with a television crew in only five weeks. But the movie seemed somehow flat and lifeless, and he even considered cutting it down to an hour and releasing it as part of his long-running television series. When composer Bernard Herrmann viewed the rough edit of the film, he asked Hitch to entrust it to him while the director went away on vacation. Hitchcock agreed, asking only one favor of Herman, that he was not to score the shower sequence, as the murder must be illustrated only by the bare sound of the knife and the running water. When Hitchcock returned from vacation, he found the picture completed, the music recorded, and the shower sequence scored. Herman had once again ignored Hitchcock's instructions, risking the loss of the director's legendary temper. When Hitchcock saw the completed scenes with Herman shrieking violence tearing like knives at Jeanette's legs, vulnerable torso, he gave his nod of approval. But Hitch, Herman asked, I thought you didn't want any music during the shower sequence. To which Hitchcock unexpectedly considered. My improper suggestion, my boy, my improper suggestion. The success of Psycho marked the highest point of their collaboration, but it was not without at all. Herman Daring Solens was too much for an increasingly reluctant to share the spotlight Hitchcock. A subtle, nearly unnoticeable chasm was beginning to develop between the two men foretelling the end of one of the most legendary partnerships in film history. Herman and Hitchcock. Hitchcock and Herman. Welcome to the music in film series of our musical encounters. My name is Sergio Camacho, and I will guide you, if you allow me to do so, through the fascinating world of cinema, looking closely to the unique communion between music and film, between film and music. 
So today we are going to be talking about directors, composers, and the unique relationships they frequently build together. So if we are going to be talking about collaborators, I need to introduce you to my own one, Elin Tan. Well, hi everyone, I'm Elin, and thanks Sergio for inviting me on this journey together with you to talk about music and film. So, if we are going to be talking about partnerships, which ones are, in your opinion, some of the most relevant ones? If you want to talk about a legendary couple, well, that would be definitely Steven Spielberg and John Williams because they have been working together for 40 plus years and they have over 30 films that they have made together and that's almost every one of Spielberg's film that is scored by John Williams. Just to name a few, there's Jaws, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, E.T., Star Wars, Harry Potter, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, and, and there's so many more, but the list goes on. There's over 30 of them, as I said. And three out of Williams' five Oscar wins were Spielberg-directed films. Um, those are Jaws, Schindler's List, and E.T. This is probably the most famous and best example of a composer-director partnership. But how was their relationship? Was it a balanced relationship or it was Spielberg who guided John Williams through the music he wanted or it was like he let John Williams decide on his own? Yeah, I think it was quite a successful relationship in terms of Spielberg giving Williams the creative freedom that he would need to compose for the films. They have helped each other to carve out their careers and their reputations in Hollywood. So whenever you mention Spielberg, you would think of Williams for the scores. And when you think of Williams, it would somehow be a Steven Spielberg film. Definitely, Williams is given a lot of creative freedom and independence from Spielberg. I guess that one of the most relevant points that we have to keep in mind is that Unless the director and the composer are on the same page, unless they share the same vision, it's very difficult that those relationships are going to last. There is definitely a matter of trust, that if that trust is not there, a creative trust and as well a personal trust, whenever that trust is in danger, those relationships don't last, as all relationships in life. So I believe that John Williams and Steven Spielberg, they had that type of balance relationship. However, there are many more examples. Can you introduce more? Wow, let me tell you my favorite one, that I love horror films. And somehow when you think of horror films, you would think of Tim Burton and Johnny Depp. Well, Johnny Depp's the actor, but he's in almost all of Tim Burton's films. And that combination of the composer-director would be Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. Well, Danny Elfman, we can talk about him and about his very interesting background as the singer of Oingo Boingo. But uh, what else can you tell us about that relationship? What films they have worked together in? Yeah, well, talking about Oingo Boingo, there was a very straightforward uh, relationship and how, how Tim came to have found Danny Elfman. Being in that group, Danny Elfman caught the attention of the young Tim Burton at the time, and they started out with uh, PV's Big Adventure. Both of them were huge fans of horror films and Elfman thought that this helped to define the partnership they developed over the next 34 or 35 years and that is a very long time. Danny Elfman does have his independent career 
but he scored uh, most of Tim Burton's films. Okay, so give us more. Okay, um, there's David Cronenberg and Howard Shore who completed 17 movies together. Well, that's the third on my list. It was over 30 for uh, Spielberg Williams. And well, they lived in Toronto at the same time, Shore and Cronenberg. And they knew each other through mutual friends. And Shore only had one film before he started his partnership with Cronenberg. And he had scored like all but one of David Cronenberg's films since 1979. And their work together included The Brood, Naked Lunch, Dead Ringers, and Crash. And Crash, especially, is notable as the first film of Cronenberg to premiere at the Cannes Festival. Okay, so you are talking about Hollywood, but what about in the rest of the world? There are those partnerships that we can find? Yeah, so one of my other favorite that is comparable to that of the Western world in the Eastern world of Japan would be the Miyazaki and Joe Hisashi, uh, Joe Hisaishi combination. So what films they did together? They did quite a couple of them together. The earliest one that started in 1984, that was after Miyazaki met Hisaishi, was Nausicaa, or Valley of the Wind. And they had Castle in the Sky, Spirit Away, Totoro, and my favorite, uh, which was uh, Princess Mononoke. They also had a very long collaborative relationship of over 35 years, I think. Okay, so we, we should not think about this relationship as exclusive, because sometimes the directors and the composers they work together for a number of films but then they also explore other types of combinations but tell us for example what about Hans Zimmer well the one that I know of is of Christopher Nolan that he worked with so what films they have done together Batman and Inception those are two very popular films and very successful ones well, for Hans Zimmer, personally, he has done The Lion King, and that was the one that won him an Oscar, but that was not a collaboration with Christopher Nolan. If we are talking about uh, Nolan and Zimmer, we have to talk about Dunkirk as well. So, uh, let's, for, for name a few others, you have uh, James Cameron and James Horner, you have uh, Sam Mendes and Thomas Newman, the Coen brothers, Carter Bonwell, Maurice Jarrett, David Lean, George Fenton and Ken Loach, Luc Besson and Eric Serra, Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone, of course. I mean, they define together what Spaghetti Western is as a genre. Wes Anderson and Alexander Desplat. There are countless of examples because it's easy to understand that when the combination happens, when music and film lock, the normal thing is that they want to repeat that format over and over again. So what happens when the relationship breaks because all relationships they are deemed to have their own challenges so what happens when the the love ends well one of the biggest problems um, was actually with the use of temp tracks so or temporary tracks that they use as placeholders while they were cutting the sequences so one of the more famous directors who loved loved Tam tracks is um, Stanley Kubrick. Well, there were a lot of issues with him and the composers that he hired. For example, um, Kubrick hired Alex North to score 2001 uh, Space Odyssey. 
And in the end, he chose to use the classical music he used um, as the temp tracks during the filming. And then he decided to just put it into the actual film and he just discarded Alex North's composition. So that was fine. But the worst thing was that North did not know it at all until the film premiered. His name came up on the screen, but the music that came out was a a classical piece. And he was, I could imagine that he was very shocked about it. Okay, I guess that what you are illustrating here is a little what we were hinting before. It's a matter of trust and it's a matter of shared vision. So in the moment that the director and the composer, they have divergent visions, at the end of the day, that doesn't work. And if the final say is on the director's side, we can find many, many examples in, in film history. We are going to actually introduce a few more of those examples later on, in which the composer and the director's re- relationship ends very frequently, even in the middle of the scoring process. If we are talking about partnerships, There is definitely one that is very iconic in the history of film, and it's the one that we were hinting before, Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Hitchcock. So let's travel together to classic Hollywood, to the end of classic Hollywood, and we are going to be talking about two people, two geniuses, working and fighting and creating together, Herrmann and Hitchcock. Bernard Herrmann is one of the few composers of the period who shake the foundations of the classical Hollywood system in a more radical way. He worked with Orson Welles in radio dramas and then moved to Hollywood for Citizen Kane in 1940. For 10 years collaborated with Hitchcock in several films including Vertigo 1958, North but Northwest that we are going to talk later about in 1959 and of course Psycho in 1960. But their partnership was, let's say, compulse. Herman was generally involved from the beginning and attended the pre-production meeting with Hitchcock. Came and went on the set, offered suggestions not only about the score but about other aspects of the film. Was consulted about the placement of music and, as we have seen, recurrently ignored Hitchcock directives when he disagreed with them. As the partnership continued, it became too sour and finally ended badly. Hitchcock was under pressure from the studio to use pop music in Torn Corton in 1966 and initially supported Herman's refusal to have anything to do with such commercial pressures. But, as usual, Herman ignored key Hitchcock directives about the music and only to find out that this time Hitchcock was having none of it. Herman was unceremoniously fired by Hitchcock after recording one cue of the score. Once friends onset and offset, Hitchcock and Herman never reconciled. In 1970s, Herman was discovered by New Hollywood, including Brian De Palma, for whom he scored Obsession in 1976, and Martin Scorsese, for whom he scored Taxi Driver in 1976. Herman died the night he finished conducting that film. I think that this, this partnership is particularly relevant not only because of the fantastic films they did together, 
But it's through this relationship, I believe that they alter the course of classic Hollywood because they created a new language, which later on many composers and many directors were to follow. So if you were to define a few words, how was Herman slash Hitchcock use of music and how that would differ to all classic Hollywood, how would you say? Well, their difference to classic, uh, older classic Hollywood is that they seldom use music to underscore a narrative section when the events are obvious or exciting enough in themselves. Um, Hitchcock prefers to use music as an independent narrative effect to indicate the tempo of a scene, for example, or to create tensions to intensify a certain mood of the scene. Well, you said Hitchcock, but probably we could say we can change Hitchcock for Herman or we can say Hitchcock and Herman. No? It's true that Herman by himself as a composer, he had a, a lot, a lot to offer. First of all, he was very daring and very creative. Probably one of the things that clash with the classic Hollywood, a very standardized formula of film production. No? He, Herman had a very distinct orchestral color. He really love to explore different combinations. Again, we, when we were talking about classic Hollywood, that they had those big, fat, romantic orchestras. For Herman, that was just one of the options. We see in films like Psycho that he went into a chamber or a string orchestra. But as well, as we commented, in others he explored other combinations, including theremins or things that by the time they were very, very revolutionary. But also, I think that another of Herman's trademarks that many composers and directors were to follow, it was leitmotifs. Leitmotifs, they were the key element of classic Hollywood, or, or at least one of the paradigms of the use of music as identifiers of mood or character. But Herman, in a way, deconstructed them. He was very keen on very, very, very short phrases, very short motifs, very often just a couple of bars, and he really liked to use them as seeds in which then all his musical world were, were to follow. No? He really explored things like harmonic ambiguity, instability. He even had his own kind of trademark, what people were to call the Hitchcock chord, no? that is a E-flat minor major seven. So that chord that later on became kind of a signature of tension and that we see in many of his scores, like for example in, in Vertigo. And he, when you watch some of his films, melodies are totally good. There are no clear melodies, there are no clear leitmotifs. All of that was able to, to build because of the trust and the collaboration of Hitchcock, that in a way he was a revolutionary himself. So if we are talking about all of these approaches, let's try to look more in detail into one of their films. Everybody talks about Psycho, we know Psycho. Many people talk about Vertigo as well, because Vertigo, that spiral movement of the opening credits, that is a kind of a theme into it, that creates that sense of Vertigo by itself, is really very revolutionary. But let's look into one that needs more attention. Let's talk a little more about North by Northwest. want me to give a summary of North by Northwest first or would it be a spoiler? Okay, 
Can you give a summary without the spoilers? Well, okay. First, we have to introduce just the characters so that we can talk about the themes that are going on later. So the protagonist is a Madison Avenue executive, um, Roger Thornhill. So Roger, and he's mistaken for this guy called George Kaplan, who was apparently a, a top American intelligence agent who was chased and hunted down by a foreign spy called Philip Wendham and his minions. Well. And in his runaway, he meets this mysterious woman. Well, there's always a woman somehow who's mysterious and seductive, and she's Eve, who is later on revealed to be associated with Wendham and the bad guys. So eventually, there's a high-ranking government official who arrives to unravel all this confusion, and they were chasing all the way to Mount Rushmore in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And well, I will leave the rest of the story as I don't want to spoil the whole thing, so the audience could watch the film and find out for themselves. You are pointing two of the more clear elements of Hitchcock narrative. You know? First, that idea of the mistaken identity that is is present in many of his films, and as well, particularly North by Northwest is built around that concept that Hitchcock called a MacGuffin. Do you know what a MacGuffin is? No idea. Well, maybe you can enlighten me a little on this. Okay, a MacGuffin is is a kind of a narrative element that the beauty of it is that only the characters know. So it's something that for the spectators is is totally irrelevant, but for the characters is so important that drives the whole plot. In North by Northwest, all the whole thing they are chasing some type of government secret, some type of a microfilm, but that microfilm is is never there. So for the spectators, it's something that we never see. It's not relevant to us, but for them, it's what drives the whole thing. It happens in many. If you remember Psycho, in Psycho, the whole story is about an envelope with forty thousand dollars, but we never see the money, or at least we see it at the beginning. But then it's something that moves all the characters, but in a way that is not what the story is about. So those kind of small elements that. In a way, have a differential importance in the world of the actors and in the world of the audience is what he's got called a MacGuffin, and he was very fond of that. Well, what is interesting to me is that the characters they do keep a straight face throughout the film, and well, one of the most memorable scenes for me, well, if we're talking about music, is that. The lack of music in that very important scene of the crop duster plane, that of Roger being stranded on a deserted Illinois prairie, and then he was pursued up and down a cornfield by a crop dusting plane armed with a machine gun, and that scene was, let's say, four minutes, I think, but no music at all. And what happened here is that Hitchcock has asked. Herman to refrain from scoring that famous scene, and only the noise of the aircraft and his machine. And and, and and Herman complied. Yeah, yeah, and he complied. Right. Oh my God, I'm surprised. On the contrary, for to, once, to cycle. <laughs> yes, he did comply, and the sound only came in um, at the end when the plane eventually crashed, and the orchestra comes in at that point. For me, one of the most. Fascinating uses of music in Norway. Norway, you don't have to wait too much to watch it. It's just just the, the opening credits, because we are talking about a, a mystery film. We are talking about a thriller, 
and for whatever reason, Herman ended up choosing a, a Spanish rhythm, a fandango, and a kind of a very powerful rhythm, and probably up to Herman. Most of the, the composers, they use the opening credits as a kind of an overture in which the themes of the story were presented. But no, what he did, it was a statement altogether, like creating tension through a rhythmic pattern that it was not connected with the mood, but connected with the energy that was to, to push through the, the film. It was quite, quite innovative. And the whole, the whole rhythm, I mean, it's, it's basically a rhythmic pattern that is repeated over and over again. Well, yeah, so the Fandango style, it does give the film an overall frantic energy that makes the storyline very like flamboyant and absurd. Well, it reflects the absurdity of the whole situation of um, being chased about, right? So it is related most often in two themes. Well, first one, the first one is the escape theme, when Roger is fleeting from Wendem. And that plays over the main title, um, the overture of the main title. And the second one is the danger theme that signifies the approaching danger. And, well, there's the third theme of um, the love between Roger and Eve, but that is not in the Fandango and is more obscure as a two-note motive. Okay, so if you were to say why is relevant or why North by Northwest is influential, what do you think is the most relevant feature? For North by Northwest, well, like other Hitchcock films, well, I would say that, first of all, it has no late motives, but the film numbers are interconnected and the short modules, are they are repeated and they are varied from piece to piece. And... Although Herman used uh, large symphony orchestras, the film sound universe is created with strings, low woodwinds, and horns. That's the main uh, combination that he has chosen to use. And in terms of instrumentation, Herman, he insisted on doing his own ones as opposed to the vertical sharing of roles in the classical Hollywood system. And he preferred to write for many different and untraditional combinations of instruments. So, to put it in, in easier words, in a way, he scrapes traditional orchestras, creating like very thick, very unconventional, untraditional combination of instruments. One thing. Then, at the same time, he scrapes as well leitmotifs. You going into small cells, in the case of North by Northwest, a rhythmic pattern, a Spanish rhythmic pattern, that is this, this fandango. And he actually connects through repetition. That's a, that's a very interesting feature as well. So, and at the same time, we have commented that there are huge sections without music at all, because music is only used for highlighting certain parts. So it's they use music as a highlighter of the text rather than uh, a structure that goes throughout it. So, do you think that that would have been possible? Herman without Hitchcock or Hitchcock without Herman? Well, considering that their friendship did end up badly, I would say that it could happen, but it might not have achieved that end result that was that Herman-Hitchcock combination because Herman does have a very good sense of his own compositions and he does have a very good... Um, interpretation of music within the film. 
Okay, so here we are posing then an interesting dilemma. Do you think that their combination, their work would have been as fruitful as it was if they had other type of dynamics? Like, for example, if Herman were to say yes to everything that Hitchcock said? I don't really think so because sometimes, I mean, in my own opinion, sometimes the director, he has a certain vision, but the composer would be able to provide the director with an additional interpretation of their own um, their own thoughts and their own ideas that could actually enhance uh, a certain scene. Like that of Psycho, that is a very classic example of what could have made it better instead of the director's own vision. Okay. Well, let's not glorify uh, conflict and chaos as the best way of working together. But it's interesting how it worked out. Other combinations, as you were saying, like Spielberg and John Williams, they're more fraternal in the way. But it's, it's based in trust as well. They trust each other. And I strongly believe that uh, Herman and Hitchcock did trust each other. Maybe they trust each other to the point in which they're work and relationship was not healthy any longer for them and, and they ended up. But now we have the legacy and that's something that we would not have without them. So the Herman and Hitchcock relationship end, but not without leaving us with a legacy of masterpieces that eventually changed the direction of classic Hollywood into the new era. So I believe that that's an important message to think about. Sometimes we are so involved in our petty, small arguments that we forget the big picture. And it's that they were two geniuses working together and creating something that was even great. So I guess it's something that if they reflected and if they look back, that probably they did, they were very proud of the work that they did together. So thank you very much, Aline. Well, thank you once again, Sergio, for inviting me today. And I'm very happy to have talked to people about music and film. Well, let's say then goodbye and see you very soon to see where our next musical encounter is going to take us. Bye-bye. How difficult is acknowledging the influence of others in our own achievements? And how important? We give proper names to the greatest attainments, to the masterpieces of world art, often forgetting that every piece is the result of the effect and direct input of numerous hands that molded it to its final shape. This is particularly relevant in films, where the vision of the director is to be shared and owned by countless others, barely featured as a never-ending list in the closing credits. The score for Psycho was a landmark yet it marked the point of no return to one of film music's most celebrated partnerships. Hitchcock was regenerated by the greatest popular success of his career, and yet, after Psycho, seemed to increasingly harden his heart towards those who shadow his popularity. In a rare public display of generosity, however, he once proclaimed to interviewers that a third of Psycho's success was due to Bernard Herrmann's music. Herman, of course, also disagreed to that. He claimed it was two-thirds. None of them were right. The full success of Psycho, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and their many other films was the result of two times two their single talents. I'm sure that, 
for once, even if privately, both Herman and Hitchcock would agree on that. See you very soon for our next musical income.